Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. I am so excited for this next conversation because there has been one economist who has uniquely been focused on the consumer, on the health of the balance sheets of Americans for, frankly, years. And now his research is all that much more poignant. Torsten Slock, Deutsche Bank chief economist, joining us now. And Torsten, you sent out a chart this morning that was pretty stark. It was global discretionary consumer spending, a 100% decline in two weeks. Can you give us a sense, Torsten, of what we have seen so far in terms of the economic impact and what it might say if you extrapolate it further, given the, all the uh, closures and shutdowns in the wake of the coronavirus? Yeah. I mean, the unfortunate thing is that we went into this with delinquency rates and consumer loans already going up. We have seen, in particular on auto loans, delinquency rates go up for several years. This has to do with loans were given to people who unfortunately were not able to pay their auto loans on time. So that meant that the delinquency rate had already been slowly moving higher on a number of different consumer loans. So this, of course, is now the backdrop for the chart that I sent out that you are mentioning exactly that we're beginning to see quite a significant drop off in discretionary spending. And discretionary spending basically means everything from cars to washers and dryers to furniture to electronics, things that normally require financing or things that are normally bigger purchases. The nuance, of course, is that um, with many people working at home, you could expect to see some categories of consumer durable goods, meaning electronics and computers and other things that could be doing better. But broadly speaking, this chart specifically showed for restaurants, we've seen, and this is more on the anecdotal side, but we've seen a number of indicators begin to show that the, unfortunately the global consumer, and this is not only a U.S. phenomenon, the global consumer is unfortunately stepping pretty hard on the brakes when it comes to discretionary spending. And that is, of course, not particularly good news when you think about the overall picture for the global economy. So, Torsten, uh, over the weekend, we've seen a, a lot of forecasts come out, economic forecasts about the U.S. economic impact with obviously a significant contraction in the second quarter. But most of them have a pretty swift rebound in Qs 3 and 4, suggesting a little bit of a V type of scenario. Where do you come out on what the economic impact could be here? Yeah, this is absolutely critical, and this is also critical for markets. I mean, what will the other leg of this uh, V or even whatever, if it will be a U, what will that look like? Uh, the fear we have is that it will be a muted rebound. And the muted aspect comes essentially from the fact that once we are on the other side of the virus, uh, if there are fears that the virus is not quite defeated everywhere in the world, if there are fears that some countries still have it, if there are fears that it might still be in some emerging markets, then you do begin to wonder, well, what are then the implications, of course, also for travel, uh, not only travel uh, globally, but even travel domestically. What are the implications in terms of how people think about what the longer term planning is in terms of vacations, the longer term planning in terms of businesses doing things? So the reason why there are reasons to be somewhat cautious about the second leg of the V or the second leg of the move higher is that uh, we will probably come out more scarred as consumers on the other side. And corporates will, quite frankly, probably also come out more scarred where everyone will have higher savings. And you, as you know too well, if you have higher savings, that means that consumption 
will also be muted. If you have higher savings for corporates, that also means that CapEx spending is also going to be muted. So the risks are that um, the rebound here is going to be uh, more uh, muted and more uh, limited relative to the speed with which we are falling at the moment. We're speaking with Torsten Slock, uh, uh, economist at uh, Deutsche Bank. And Torsten, you've done a lot of work about the fact that a lot of American households don't have an extra $400 to cover emergency expenses. You've also talked about how the uh, the lower wage workers are going to get harder hit by the disruptions caused by the coronavirus. And I'm just wondering, going forward, do you have a sense of whether the fiscal stimulus currently being bandied about out in Washington, D.C., adequately gets money to the people who would need it in order to continue their lifestyles and at least cushion the blow a little bit to get back to uh, the kind of recovery that you're looking for, hoping for on the other side of this? Yeah, this is absolutely a key question from a forecasting perspective, both for the economy and for markets. The problem is, as you know, and as you just mentioned, that uh, if you look at the Fed data, uh, about 40% of the population would not be able to come up with $400 if they had an emergency expense. And data from 2019 shows that roughly half of U.S. households don't have an emergency savings account, and that means that they don't have a savings account with money put aside if there is some unexpected expenses. And if you also look at the distribution of this, it is distributed more among lower-income households. And if you also then look at the issues in terms of age distribution, it is also distributed more in terms of uh, the uh, younger people uh, and the younger generations who don't have savings. So it will certainly have a significant impact in distributional terms on the consumer, what we're going through here. And to your question about the package that's being discussed, uh, we need to see exactly how the design is, as you cover so well. Uh, This is still being debated. Uh, But it is pretty clear that uh, from a market perspective, for every day that we don't get a solution, then uh, there is a risk that uh, this will be a deeper slowdown simply because something is needed right now. And if you go back and look at what happened in 2009, then when the Congress voted on sending checks out to consumers, it took two months from the bill was voted on until the checks actually arrived. And two months forward from today, that brings you to late May. That's a very, very long period for consumers while they still have to pay their bills on their rent, their mobile phones, the groceries, everything that's going on. And that's why discretionary spending does get a bit lower priority in that scale of things. Is it already too late? I wouldn't say it's too late, uh, but I mean, uh, as as we all know, and and if you take the statistic into account that uh, half of the U.S. households really only have their checking account, and the money that they have in that. And if you are so unfortunate that you lost your job through this and you are so unfortunate that you don't have any savings, I mean, we have a rent payment coming up here on April the 1st, uh, and maybe we'll be able to get through that. But uh, the longer that we have to go through rent payments and payments on mobile phones, the more the more cautious uh, and, and more hesitant and reluctant U.S. consumers probably get. So that's why uh, the more confidence U.S. households and markets can get that a package is coming and it's coming sooner rather than later. I do think that that will be very supportive, of course, importantly for markets, but most importantly, ultimately, for the U.S. economy. Torsten Slock, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your perspective. Torsten Slock is Deutsche Bank's chief economist. 
Well, certainly the news of the morning is the Federal Reserve unveiling unlimited quantitative easing to aid for businesses and states. To get some details, we welcome our good friend Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. What are the salient details here of what the Fed announced this morning? Well, I think uh, the most important is the unlimited QE and the fact that they're starting this week by basically doing that. $600 billion, $75 billion in treasuries, $50 billion in mortgage securities every day this week. That dwarfs anything we saw during the QE 1, 2, and 3 period. So they are going all in on that. And then the fact that they're buying corporate bonds now. They're setting up a special purpose vehicle. The idea is uh, keep these things off the Fed's books. Technically, they're not allowed to buy corporate paper. So uh, by setting up a special purpose vehicle, they can sort of get around that. And you mentioned that the the Fed is, uh, is putting up for this. It's also the Treasury Department. In the corporate bond uh, programs and the asset back program, the Treasury is taking an equity stake in that as well. So they're working together. Uh, on that. And one important thing to keep in mind is that if the stimulus bill puts more money into the exchange stabilization fund at the Treasury, as it's sort of scheduled to do, they could ramp these up even farther and and buy even uh, greater amounts. So the Fed and Treasury working together to do as much as they can to try to take some of the pressure off in the markets. So the Federal Reserve really uh, sort of reinstating some of the crisis era programs. The program you were talking about is TALF, right? The term asset-backed securities loan facility that they're reinstating. And basically, uh, the idea here is to create a way to lever up to free up cash based on existing loans and securities that are held on dealers and investors' balance sheet. I'm trying to understand the credit risk that the Fed is taking on here. Yes, this is providing more cash to the system. Are they also essentially bearing the credit risk for these instruments too? Well, the special purpose vehicle will, at least for the corporate bonds, bear the credit risk. They are insisting that uh, what you can put up is got to be investment grade, but they're going down to triple B minus. So they're they're willing to take, um, you know, some risk that uh, some of this stuff may fall if the corporation is ultimately downgraded. Then um, the uh, the TALF program is triple A rated uh, assets. So they're taking as little credit risk as possible. They have a requirement in the Dodd-Frank uh, law that they can't lose money basically they they can't put uh, financing at risk so they can only go so far with that and that's one of the reasons you have the treasury involved in this taking the first tranche of risk hey mike in terms of scope and scale how does this action compare to 2008 they've gone beyond uh 2008 in in two ways one in size there are more programs now buying more things and also in speed there has since 2008 been a doctrine sort of developed in economics called optimal control which is a nerdy term for go big go fast uh, when you're facing a crisis throw everything you've got at it as quickly as possible to get ahead of it and don't chase it down the market you know don't chase the market down and so uh that's what they seem to be applying here they seem to be all in on that if we do everything we can now it will put a floor under the markets obviously the floor is going to depend on what your outlook is in the markets for how long this is going to go on but the fed is signaling it's going to do everything possible is it out does it have anything left (laughs) uh it doesn't have a whole lot left uh 
unless it could take on more credit risk. I'm not sure what else they could buy. They're pretty much <laughs> buying every asset except <laughs> equities, which they're legally I have, prevented from I have a from bench doing. over here if they want it. They could have it. They could come get it. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll have a flea market sale. Uh, <laughs> they can buy that. But uh, the Fed is doing everything they can do. Now, they did mention that they're going to set up a Main Street lending program but we don't have any details on that. It does seem to be tied to whatever comes out of Capitol Hill, and we'll see how that works. There was some thought at the Fed that they didn't really want to be in the position of being the lender to Main Street because they don't have the bureaucratic setup to do it, that banks would be better off doing that, and banks could be funded directly through the fiscal program. But it, it may be that the Fed's going to have a role here. Michael McKee, thank you so much uh, for for breaking it down for us. And we'll continue to get details and we'll bring them to you, but definitely throwing the kitchen sink at it. The Federal Reserve trying to cut out ahead of what will inevitably be a really difficult time in the economy. Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg, really uh, amazing the speed and the scope to which they are acting. Perhaps they learned from the last time around. It does not help anything to be slow, certainly when Congress is not passing their bill in the fashion that everybody would like. Let's bring in our good friend, Kit Jukes, Global FX Strategist for Societe Generale. Kit, thanks so much for joining us. We know you're busy uh, talking with your clients, keeping uh, in touch with the market. Give us a sense of, you know, we've seen the dollar, the DXY index just rally so dramatically over the last couple of weeks. What's your sense about kind of the currency markets right here? Um, they're, they're calmer today than they've been, which doesn't mean they're calm. Um, you know, last week was a mad scramble for for dollars. We, we know we know the dollar is the world's global currency. We know there's a lot of folks who have dollar assets that they finance with short-term dollar liabilities. Whether they're borrowing and lending dollars from Americans or not doesn't matter. It, they they need them and they needed them immediately. The, the Fed has, you know, along with with Peter's. Uh, mother-in-law's kitchen sink, whoever else's kitchen sink he had involved in, in, in this particular exercise, they they were very quick to expand the group of central banks that they do swap arrangements with to get more dollars more widely into the system. They seem to have calmed down the domestic front end of the money market, um, but it's a huge problem. So so on any given day we look at it, and you know I, I couldn't promise you that we wouldn't start feeling dollars tight. Um, again later this evening, you know, before I go home. But but today, um, as the Fed has ramped up yet again, you know, the the, the dollar is a little bit lower against um, against the euro and and, and the and the yen. Um, the currencies that are still, it's a lot weaker, by the way, against things like the you know the, the Norwegian krona, for example, which is sort of getting itself out of jail. But it's it's still um, the, the weakest currencies are sort of half related to that, which are the ones which are. Um, most oil sensitive. So some of the emerging market currencies are weak, weak generally. Um, the oil sensitive currencies, um, they, they have, you know, they, they have a whole problem of their own, really, with with the collapse in, in oil prices um, that gave them this kind of unique double whammy. But but the Fed is doing a fantastic job of 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 doing more than the ECB did when they did whatever it takes. If if everything yeah. is bigger than that, then 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 this is where we are. And Kit, I think most of the people who I was speaking with over the weekend agreed with you 
but they still felt rather catastrophic. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, there is a feeling out there, a very big fear that all of the borrowing, the leverage that was built into the system with especially emerging markets borrowing in dollars and corporates around the world just borrowing as much as they could to do things like you know, share buybacks and pay out dividends, that the Fed can't stop this and that possibly fiscal stimulus can't either. And the system just needs to kind of exhaust itself before people can really start to reassess the damage. Do you think there's any credence to that view? I'm worried about that being true. I, mean, I think central banks can, can get to grips with this. But, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a problem that comes later, which is that if you know, if 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 the if corporate America, for example, has relevered itself since the financial crisis, so there's even more leverage than there was last time. Um, is it great that we all get sorted out with infinite infinite free short-term money to to, to make everything okay? Um, you know, we, we we do actually have to clean the system out. So, but but I don't think we need to clean it out in the middle of a of a human crisis. Thanks. That's not a a useful piece. So I, I I do think that we will that we will get through. But but you're right. It's enormous. You know. I mean, again, over the weekend, you know, the kind of the charts that were being floated around were all um, Armageddon ones in terms of, of how bad some of these things outflows from um, outflows from uh, bond funds uh, from ETFs, uh, the weakness that we were seeing in things. And, and um, what, what I what I think though, if there's a crumb of comfort, is that what we've learned. Um, over several cycles now, it is to to go in large, not worry about inflation, um, and to tidy up later. But but go in, and and really make sure that the financial system doesn't make the economic problems and the real life problems worse than they have to be already. I think they'll succeed, but I am not anything other than anxiously staring at screens all day, <laughs> like the rest of us. Exactly. Could- yeah, Kit Jukes, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day. Kit Jukes, Global FX Strategist for Societe General, joining us on uh, the phone. Again, the DXY index uh, off a little bit less than 1%, but it's been so strong over the past couple of weeks, Lisa, as investors just flock to the, you know, the, the, the U.S. dollar. You know, frankly, I'm, I'm getting a little bit of confidence today that gold is up. That spot gold right. is up yep. because there was a fear last week that everything was broken with bond yields rising and gold prices falling and this idea that you could just sell whatever you can. And there wasn't really a bid for anything other than cash or dollars on the other side of it. And and it does feel like there is a different tone today. The question is whether it will be enough to really lubricate the system and get people to have conviction going yep. into riskier credit at a time of a really uncertain economic backdrop. There's a question, Paul. A lot of people, particularly wealthier individuals, had been getting rather cautious in the months leading up to the coronavirus-induced disruption that we've seen recently. There is a question of how they got cautious, moving more into real estate, whether they have the cash to actually start deploying it, and whether they're starting to get perhaps a little bit more, I don't want to say bullish, but starting to pick over some of the rubble amid this sell-off. Joining us now is someone with a very unique and important perspective on this, Michael Sonnenfeld, chairman and founder of Tiger 21. It's a peer organization of ultra- 
wealthy individuals that come together and share their investing strategies and views. Uh, it has 770 members, more than $77 billion in assets. Michael, I remember last time we spoke with you, you were talking about how there is an increasing focus on real estate. Can you give us a sense of how some of the members of, 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 of your organization were positioned heading into this and what they're talking about right now? Sure. Well, everybody is obviously socked into their homes and gone through a transformation of being virtual. Uh, so that's new for everybody. Uh, going into this, our members, which are not just wealthy, they're entrepreneurs. It's a subset of people with certain levels of wealth. But because of entrepreneurs, it allows them to think about this quite differently. And for the last year, people have been getting nervous about the market. But of course, nobody could have anticipated the uh, the coronavirus, nor the Russia-Saudi uh, Arabia oil debacle. It's sort of like having a tsunami and an earthquake at the same time. So earth, while, while real estate has remained tops for our members at about 28% of uh, assets, it's actually come down as well. They had taken chips off the table over the last year and maintained very strong cash reserves at 12% so that they're not forced to sell uh, at a bottom like this, but have enough living expenses so that they can uh, power through or survive to the best of ability. But obviously, there's a lot of devastation all around. Michael, what are your clients thinking here as to, you know, kind of the duration here? Are they thinking, uh, kind of Felice's question, maybe time to maybe look at certain names or certain asset classes, or are they taking a boy, this could be a, a much longer, lower for longer type scenario. So I don't think there's any one view. It's a collection of views. Uh, and our members who are typically in groups that meet in person now are meeting virtually. We've shifted the organization completely to virtual uh, meetings uh, on a dime, so to speak. Um, and uh, obviously, some members are looking for opportunities. Uh, a number of us traded uh, shorts uh, at the first sign of coronavirus uh, of the market, and that trade uh, has turned out to be very good. But uh, in almost in most cases, the profits from those shorts has simply offset declines in the portfolio because you can't liquidate private equity and real estate uh, in a month, and that's uh, where we have a large concentration. But as to timing. I think everybody understands this is this is totally unique, and the the medical issues, the health issues, are likely to peak within three to six months, uh, as has happened everywhere else. Uh, but when you have the kind of economic dislocation, the question is how long will it take to for the economy to bounce back? And the only insight that we have is uh, typically it takes less time. Most people say ten years. This could uh, be uh, returned in two to three years, but it's not going to be in six months. Michael, I want to go to your point about the real estate investments, that there were some chips taken off the table ahead of this, but that still was uh, a significant holding or the biggest holding of your members. Tom Barrick, real estate investor, uh, said in a Bloomberg Television interview that the U.S. commercial mortgage market is on the brink of collapse. He predicted a domino effect of catastrophic economic consequences if the industry isn't basically backstopped by the government. I'm wondering whether any of your members are, I guess, 
in technical parlance, freaking out right now and trying to liquidate as much of their holdings as they can uh, in the face of what could be even more pain. Yeah. So you have to distinguish between the the real estate equity market and which is not a liquid market other than if you own it through REITs and the commercial credit market uh, where there is more liquidity. Most of our members, uh, real estate exposure is in owning buildings directly or through private partnerships, limited partnerships. And, you know, a perfect example is uh, my partner and I developed a Kohl's department store, meaning we own the land and Kohl's uh, built their own building on the land. Uh, That was a rock-solid triple-net lease. But right now, uh, Kohl's is uh, shutted their doors. They have no revenue, so they're not going to pay their rent. And if uh, they, they may not, they haven't stopped yet. But if they don't, pay their rent, and how do you pay the mortgage? And so you have this cascading effect. So what Tom is talking about is unless there's help for the uh, rent payers, uh, you'll have this cascading effect that the landlords uh, can't make their debt payments, and that's where all hell breaks loose. So, Michael, just real quickly, what do your members think the government needs to do here? Uh, The government, first of all, needs to act decisively, Uh, Members, uh, I think, largely expect uh, a bailout, uh, and they really would like the kind of leadership nationally uh, that is calming that we've seen from FDR, as an example, during the war. And hats off to Governor Cuomo, who seems to have really taken the lead in the kind of uh, communications and straight talk uh, that is calming to people. Uh, people really would like to see a, a steady hand and an optimistic but realistic assessment about how to get through this. Michael Sonnenfeld, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your unique opinion on uh, investing across a whole series of asset classes. Michael Sonnenfeld is the chairman of Tiger 21 with a unique uh, group of investors. Uh, ultra high net worth investors uh, tend to uh, have some unique uh, ways to look at the markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.